Proverbs is a treasure trove of practical wisdom. When you don't know what to do, God hasn't left you to yourself or me to myself, praise God. Uh, if you master the book of Proverbs, you will be one of the most irritating people to be around. If you master the book of Proverbs, you'll be like a walking fortune cookie. You'll know pithy things to say, and you'll have something to add all the time. And I, I do say that negatively, not only facetiously and sarcastically, or, and, and certainly not just for a little chuckle. If you master the book of Proverbs, you will know a bunch of pithy things to say. But if you're mastered by the book, then you'll be equipped to walk with wisdom in all the complexities of life. There won't be an arena of life that you won't know what to do in a way that pleases God. But you won't know that you know what to do until you're in the complexity. So God doesn't give it to you ahead of time in a way that you can formulate and say, but in the moment, because you've been mastered by the book, you'll know in the moment how to walk with wisdom. We all know that rightly interpreting Proverbs can be very, very tricky. Let me give you a couple of notorious examples. Is it always certain that, quote, if you train up a child in the way that he should go, that even when he is old, he will not depart from it? How many parents have there been in human history in our current day and even in this congregation who have mercilessly beat themselves because they wonder what they did wrong when their grown children are not walking in the way they should go? Is it always wise? Quote, to answer a fool in his folly. Proverbs 26.4 Or should we not answer a fool in his folly? Proverbs 26.4 and 5 So that we will not be like him. The complexities of this book abound. A wise person processes the book of Proverbs until it starts to shape our heart so that we begin to think and act in accord with the character of God. Until we begin to have thoughts and responses and actions that accord with His nature. What is God like? Instead of basing our entire theology on one proverb, because by the way, you can find some that contradict the others. Instead of basing our entire theology on one proverb, the wise person realizes that the patterns of life usually work in God's economy. For example, Proverbs has a lot to say about this statement. If you work hard, you will probably prosper. But if you do not, you will probably be materially poor. But it doesn't always work that way, does it? Just ask our brother Job in the Old Testament, who had all kind of abundance of material prosperity, and was a man who labored hard and discipled his children to do the same and lost it all, owing to no sin of his own. Why Proverbs? Why do we have these 31 chapters in our Bible? Well, they were compiled originally under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by various editors and compilers as a manual for wisdom. How to get wisdom. Parents were to take their children through these Proverbs in their homes to educate them in the ways of the Lord. It is an instruction manual for wisdom. And sages in the community of Israel would later take their students through these very same themes in a more in-depth way, seeking to train them in wise living according to God's standard. Well, with that in mind, let's dig in to Proverbs, shall we? Join me in chapter 8. We'll pick up the reading in verse 22. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. Proverbs 8, 22. 
The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way. Before works of old, from everlasting I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While He had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when He established the heavens, I was there. When He inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when He made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when He set for the sea its boundary, so that the water would not transgress His command, when He marked out the foundations of the earth, verse 30, then I was beside Him as a master workman, and I was daily His delight, rejoicing always before Him, rejoicing in the world, His earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Now therefore, O sons, listen to Me, for blessed are they who keep My ways. Heed instruction and be wise. and Do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to Me, watching daily at My gates, waiting at My doorpost. For he who finds Me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against Me injures himself. All those who hate Me love death. Join me at the throne of grace. We ask again for God's blessing as we consider these things. Father, we ask that You would make us wise for life. We're asking that You would make us in, in, in double meaning wise for life. In our life, in the complexities, in the daily details, the minute, and the mega, the little and the big. Make us wise for life. We also ask that You would make us wise so that we will have life. Not just in the details of our life, but for true life. Give us wisdom. That is, give us Yourself. Bless us now in these few moments that we meditate on these profound truths. And do what Psalm 19 says. Would you make the simple wise? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brief overview of Proverbs and then four points that I want to lay before you from this passage. Uh, first, Proverbs are tough. Man, uh, no disrespect to the book of Acts. Or 1 Corinthians, which Lord willing we'll dig into beginning uh, next year. No disrespect to those New Testament books and no disrespect to some other very challenging texts like Ezekiel, but I think Proverbs is the hardest book in the Bible to preach through. And I got mad props for my preacher compadres who have just gone verse by verse, passage by passage in a preaching series through the book, and I was almost crazy enough to do it myself. But uh, instead of that, we have decided to take eight weeks to deal with the themes of Proverbs under three categories. Big banner, wisdom for life. And the way we're going to attack this animal is the three relationships that Proverbs deal with. Your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, and your relationship with others. And Proverbs has a lot to say about each of those three relationships, and pretty much everybody agrees that that's what Proverbs is about. Wisdom in relationships, and how we apply uh, God's truth in the complexities of every one of those relationships. And today will just be an introduction and an overview in a Christ-centered way, and then, Lord willing, we'll have three parts on our relationship with God, two on our relationship with ourselves, and two on our relationships with others, and we fully intend to meddle all in our business uh, as we do this because Proverbs loves to do that. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1 names Solomon as the principal author or editor would be a better way to think about that because Solomon's Proverbs don't even begin until chapter 10. So if you just think all the Proverbs are from Solomon, you're not thinking in, in a detailed way as the book describes it. 
So in addition to Solomon, the Proverbs were written or compiled, edited by those like Hezekiah, chapters 25 to 29, who took some of Solomon's Proverbs in that section in his compilation. Or Agur in chapter 30, or Lemuel chapter 31, just read a little... uh, tiny biography on Lemuel Haynes this week that Dan gave me, who was named after uh, Lemuel of, of Proverbs 31. And there are other compilers and editors in the book. So that's just a quick little introduction to authorship. The key verse of the book. What's this, what's this book of untangling conundrums really about? The key verse is chap- uh, verse 7 of chapter 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the starting place. The beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In our three parts on relationship to God, Pastor Brown will be beginning next Sunday from that verse to unpack this theme. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. A right understanding of Proverbs does not begin in your head, it begins in your heart. A love for the author, not only his words, that manifests itself from the heart in holy fear. That's a a truth of Scripture that needs to be recovered in our day. Trembling before God. A holy fear. What is fear of the Lord? Biblically. It's a fear of displeasing the One that we love. And so Proverbs really begin in your heart. Unfortunately, too few of us feel our need for help in our relationship with God, ourselves, and others. The way that becomes very obvious is when we think about life this way. It sure would be nice to have a few supplemental tidbits to my already quite competent understanding of insights that I need on my life. And if God would give me a few little pick-me-ups or helpful little uh, blurbs or quotes or tidbits to my already quite competent knowledge, then life might be a little better, but I'm doing okay on my own. The way to think about God rightly is not to begin with what you already think and just add a little bit of extra to it. The Gospel has to tear you all the way down before it begins to build you up. You don't naturally think rightly about God and His world. How precious few feel a deep need for Proverbs 8.11. Seek for wisdom as jewels. If I told you I had scattered about the building today the most priceless jewels on earth, and they're yours for the taking, worth all their millions, then you would probably hunt high and low in every little nook and cranny and corner of this building. But Proverbs says, seek for wisdom as jewels. How few gear up to explore for God's thoughts and counsel like priceless treasure. But Proverbs teaches us in chapter 2, if you seek for her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Who gets to attain to that? That is, those who seek for her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures. So those who already have a quite competent understanding of life, you're as smart as they come, and you just would like God to occasionally deposit into your already comprehensive understanding of the conundrums of life a few little fortune cookie uh, uh, slips of paper, Proverbs is not for you. But, if you feel a need for a wisdom that comes from beyond you, an alien, outside of you, source of stability and instruction, then Proverbs is the place to go. It shows us that God is not interested in supplementing our vision of life with a few of His nice suggestions. Proverbs is not written to assist us in our effort to inflict our wisdom on everybody else, which is why I said you'll become the most irritating person on the planet if you master the book of Proverbs. That's not what it's about. It's not for you to add your two cents to everybody else's problems. It's not for you to become Job's friends and tell him why everything is going wrong in his life and if they just thought like you thought, then everything would go well. 
God is unwaveringly committed. I'm going to say that again. God is unwaveringly. You can't shift Him. He is unwaveringly committed to what is best for us. To train you to think like He thinks. To disciple us into applying His character, His love to our own heart and through us to others. Those who think they have life figured out pretty well without God meddling in their business, Proverbs actually has some things to say to you. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Chapter 3, verse 7. Fear the Lord and, listen to what God calls it, turn away from evil. Do you know what God thinks evil is? You thinking you're wise without God. Have you ever repented of that? God calls it evil. Proverbs 12.15 The way of a... This is God's Word. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Are you a fool? Whether we realize it or not, we need wisdom that is beyond us. It is outside of us. We do not inherently possess this. It lies beyond even what we can learn from the experiences of life. We need God. The school of hard knocks doesn't give you wisdom. You might learn a thing or two that you can pass on, but it's not in God's category wisdom. The wise have been shaped by God's Word. Or as the New Testament says, we've been transformed by the renewal of our mind through the the, the medium of Scripture in prayer and meditation in the presence of God so that we begin to see something that we didn't already see. That is, the patterns of life that God generally blesses. And wise people walk in those ways. And we also begin to see that there's no way that we can see the entire pattern so we trust the Lord and not ourselves. The more we delve into Proverbs, we admit that it's not New Testament type material. You know there's different genres in the Bible, right? Different styles of writing. So you've got big narrative sections in the Old Testament telling you the history of Israel. You've got wisdom lit- literature, which would include Proverbs. In the New Testament, you have epistolary, propositional, verse by verse, truth, 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 and it always works that way. We've got to understand that we're dealing with a different type of genre, a different type of material when we come to Proverbs. It's not epistolary material like the New Testament, but it's teachings that must be taken not isolated from the rest, but as a whole to sort out how an issue is to be approached. Because sometimes it is this way. And sometimes when it looks very similar, it's that way. But you have to have wisdom to be able to discern and detect which is which. How are we to respond to the various complexities of life? You know what James says? Pray about it. If you lack wisdom, here's what you do, said the brother of Jesus. Ask God. And if you pray for God to give you wisdom, I promise you that sooner rather than later, He's going to lead you to 31 chapters that He wrote down in His book called Proverbs. It's His answer, in large part, to the prayer for wisdom. Let's define wisdom, and then we're going to try to dig in to four introductory ideas to get us to meditate on the glory of God from chapter 8. Defining wisdom. On this gadget right here, you can't see it from where you're at, but there's a reminder notification. It's been on the front screen of my phone for a long time. Because I don't know how long ago I said, remind me to define wisdom. And then up pops this reminder. And I have not taken that thing off for a long time, and I don't anticipate I'll be taking it off for a long time. Because that's a tough one, isn't it? I've asked several people within and beyond our church, how would you define wisdom? And I've received so much helpful, insightful, biblically faithful responses. My wife and I were sitting with a few, uh, a couple of other ladies for lunch the other day, and I asked them to help me. Would you help me define wisdom? And their responses were wise. Because they started to delineate. Well, they immediately recognized the problem. Now, if you're one of those factoid people, you already got it figured out, so you can just tune out to what I'm about to say Uh, Because you already know what wisdom is. And in a few minutes, you can tune back in. But if you're not sure what wisdom is, you'll sound like these ladies at lunch the other day. They immediately knew the challenge. Because one of them said, well, at first, 
I was going to go down the path of intelligence, being smart. But there's a lot of very smart people who are very unwise. It's also not dependent, they were saying, on age. How old you are. Because there's a lot of elderly people who are unwise. It's also not dependent on experience alone. There's a lot of people who've been through the school of hard knocks and they have not learned their lesson. So you can be old and unwise. You can be smart and unwise. You can be experienced and unwise. Conversely, we've run into a, enough young, inexperienced people who are eminently wise beyond their years because wisdom is no respecter of age, right? So if you're going to define wisdom, how do you define it? One needs to look no further than the Lord Jesus to prove that the argument of wisdom is not based on age or experience, right? The young man was the wisest who baffled the scholars in the temple with the Scriptures with his searching questions when he was 12 years old. What is wisdom? How would you define it? Well, I've been rolling that rock around in my little brain for a long time and it is not smooth yet. My prayerful summations to attack that definition from several angles would be this. The ability to live faithfully in this world by treasuring the King of the world to come. Because it's a heart issue. If you don't love the One who made the world, you can't live wisely in the world that He made. Even if you think all the right stuff, enter the Pharisees. They were true. They had truth, but they didn't have wisdom. Another way to come at this, wisdom is the gift of God to those who love God, but what gift does He give them? He gives them the gift to live with conviction and confidence. To be convicted, but to be accurate. Conviction and confidence to live that way before God. And He reserves that gift exclusively for those who diligently seek Him. That's wisdom. Another way to say it, for those who like the big words, is it's a communicable attribute of God. It's something He can give to you from Himself. There's a lot of things God has that He'll never give to anybody else because He can't. They're incommunicable attributes. He can't communicate them to you. He'll never make you omnipresent. He'll never make you omniscient. He'll never make you omnipotent, all-powerful. He has qualities in and of Himself that belong to God alone, and you can't have them, but wisdom is communicable. It is a communicable attribute of God manifested perfectly in Jesus, inscripturated infallibly by the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures, and transferred into the lives of God's people through diligent prayer, meditation on the Word of God, and koinonia with the saints. And if you take out one part of any of those, you can't have wisdom. Diligent prayer, meditation on Scripture, and quinonia with the saints. You have to test your wisdom in the community of the saints. Well, with all that in mind, let's try to get some wisdom. Chapter 8. It's famous for the personification of wisdom. Another big word, personification. Meaning, it does not speak of wisdom as a quality. Wisdom, according to Proverbs, is not primarily an it, but rather a who, a person. The personification of wisdom. As we look at the details of this chapter, I believe that it will become increasingly clear. Not only that, it will become increasingly clear, Lord willing, and I have certainly prayed, who is in view in this chapter about wisdom. Number one, wisdom was present with the Lord before anything else was created. Wisdom predates creation. Verse 22, wisdom speaking, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way before His works of old. So wisdom is present with the Lord before His work. The Lord possessed me. Well, there's some controversy among Christians about whether or not this verse and this larger passage are referring uh, to the Lord Jesus or not, but the overwhelming majority of Christians in church history and today agree that the wisdom who is speaking in Proverbs 8 is referring to 
the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just going to dive right there, make a beeline to him. In fact, I'm happy to go there because the majority of Christians have agreed on that, but there's even non-Christians who've agreed on that. Like, how can we miss it? In fact, the Arians, the early heresy in the early church, Arianism, denied the eternal nature of Jesus. If you don't think Jesus existed forever, you can't be a Christian. That's heresy. But they would point to this verse, and they would say, ah, there it is. Jesus, they would say, quote, verse 22, was possessed in the beginning. And they would say that word should be translated created. He was created in the beginning. But they would say it's Jesus. They would just say the word should be created. The problem with that is that it's used 84 times in the Old Testament and not one time is it rendered create. There are six or seven times that it could be, except that it's not. So even non-Christians have agreed that this is Jesus. But here's the point. As the vast majority of interpreters point to Jesus, the Lord possessed me. Not it. Not wisdom. It. Me, at the beginning of His way before His works of old. When our brothers and sisters in church history leaned into this passage, they started to preach sermons like Robert Murray McShane's sermon on chapter 8, verse 4. To you, O men, I call. Wisdom speaking. To you, O men, I call. Robert Murray McShane titled his sermon, Jesus Invite. Dr. Andrew Davis' sermon on Proverbs 8 is titled, Jesus' wisdom is greater than Solomon's. The reality that verse 22 is not speaking of a created being, but an eternal being is further confirmed by the words of the next verse, which is usually always helpful to look at. From everlasting, I was established. Verse 23. So first, I want you to see, that wisdom was present with the Lord before creation, and this is none other than the eternal Lord Jesus. Number two, wisdom is the blueprint that God used for creation. Not only was wisdom, the Lord Jesus, present, but Jesus Himself is the pattern. He is the paper. He is the blueprint that God used to create everything. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Marriage or the Gospel? Paul says something strange in Ephesians chapter 5 about that question. Because Paul goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and he quotes Genesis to say, this mystery, quote chapter 2 of Genesis, is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Meaning, Paul says, God didn't look down on earth and say, man, that marriage relationship sure is a good illustration for me to use to tell the world how much I love my people. Instead, God said, I love my people. What might I create in terms of a human institution that would show the world how much I love them and how I love them? So then, He designed human marriage on the basis of the pattern of the Gospel. Question, chicken or the egg? Which came first? Wisdom in the presence of God for eternity as a blueprint and pattern for creation or creation, and then God saying, hmm, maybe I'll send my son into that order in order to show them how much I love. Wisdom is the blueprint God used for creation. Look at verse 24. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there when he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundaries so that the water would not transgress its command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Verse 27, when he established the heavens, I was there. The creation of everything. Now if you want your mind to be blown, just think about this for about .02 seconds and smoke will come out of your ears. Before God created anything, there was nothing besides God. No space. Nothing. Only God. No heavens. No angels. No floor. No throne. No cherubim. Nothing. 
Nothing was there save God. The creation of everything, which is everything that exists outside of God, was a joint effort between the persons of the triune God. In the very first verse of the Bible, we find the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the last book of the Bible, we learn that it was none other than the Lord Jesus who receives the angels' praise from the moment they were created, who sing even as you're seated in this little gymnasium, worthy are you because you created all things. The Lord Jesus is the template and the author of all that exists outside of God. He is the Creator. Speaking of God's work in creation, verse 30 says in our chapter, then I was daily beside Him as a master workman. When we encounter the language of Proverbs 8, we're inescapably bound to conclude that someone, some wise one, was the blueprint that the Father used to create all all things as a reflection of His glory, and it was through Him, Scripture teaches us, Jim cited Colossians chapter 1, through Him everything was created. Derek Kidner in his his commentary on Proverbs has helped me so much. says, not a speck of matter, verse 26, not a trace of order, verse 29, came into existence apart from wisdom. A person. So number two, the blueprint God used for creation is His Son. If He wanted to show His glory outside of Himself, how would He do it? Looking at Jesus, everything is made to show His glory. Alright, number three. Wisdom is shorthand. This is my favorite, favorite, favorite of all the things in chapter 8 except the last one I'm going to tell you. (laughs) Wisdom is shorthand for the inter-Trinitarian joy of God. The inter-Trinitarian joy of God. You've got to put on your thinking cap, okay? Let your soul simmer in chapter 8, verse 30b for just a moment. Chapter 8, verse 30, the second part of the verse. And I was daily His delight, that's one thing, rejoicing always before Him. That's another thing. The first is the delight of the Father. The second is the delight of the Son. The deepest fountain of wisdom that God has enjoyed, or to use the word from the verse, delighted in, is His delight in wisdom from forever. He uses the word daily. I was daily His delight. So, wisdom is Proverbs' shorthand way of speaking about the inner Trinitarian joy of God. I was daily His delight. Because we're finite creatures, we can't think outside of temporal categories. So even when we talk about eternity, we talk about eternity past and eternity future. But that's oxymoronic. Right? There is no past and future. But we're finite creatures and we can't think outside of the bounds of time. You are incapable of thinking timelessly. You can't do it. In order to accommodate we weak, feeble creatures, wisdom says daily I was His delight. Not as if there are days in eternity past, but he's saying there's not a day if there were such a thing that he had a delight that was not me. The inner Trinitarian joy of God. The deepest fountain of the Bible is, brace yourself, God. (laughs) The deepest delight of God is God. If you have never reckoned with the wonderful, soul-exhilarating truth, that God is the most God-centered person in the universe, then you have not yet reckoned with the fundamental reality of God. God exists eternally in and of and by Himself. And His eternal existence is one of supreme joy. Infinite delight. Unfettered exhilaration. What, I ask you, is the source of His joy? This verse answers the question. I, His Son, 
Wisdom was daily His delight. In complete harmony, the reverse is also true because the, latter, the next phrase says, rejoicing always before Him. I was His delight as I always rejoiced before Him. So as the Father delights in the Son, the reverse is also true. A love relationship is truly joyful not when one party, but when both parties fully delight in the other. And nothing could be more foundational to the character of God than mutual delight. By the Spirit's power, the Son has always delighted Himself in the Father from forever as the Father has always delighted Himself by the Spirit's power in the Son from forever. I was, Proverbs 8.30c, always rejoicing before Him. Do you see that? Can you believe that? I don't know what you think about God, but please let this verse inform your understanding. The Father delighting in the Son from forever. The Son rejoicing before the Father from forever. Forever. The word rejoicing could literally be translated, some of your Bibles have the footnote, playing. P-L-A-Y-I-N-G. Playing. Think about it. There are no joys greater for a parent than to see their children frolicking about. Playing. Living free. Being unbounded in their joy. Expressing their pleasures. Experiencing the rush of extreme delight. When a parent sees that in their child, child, it rouses the parent's height to great joy. When the child's unfettered frolicking, playing about, living free, unbounded joy, expression of pleasure, an extreme rush of joy is found not in something, but in you, nothing could exhilarate your heart more. And this wisdom is saying, I am always playing before Him. I am always rejoicing before Him. The Father's delight in the Son. The Son's delight in the Father. I have always, says wisdom, rejoiced that way before the Father. The Father's joy in the Son. The Son's joy in the Father. This is our God. Who would not want to spend time with the happiest person in the universe? Psalm 43, the psalmist says the obvious. I will go to God, to God my exceeding joy. In Hebrews chapter 1, we're told of the Lord Jesus that God Almighty broke open the flask of joy in heaven and, quote, anointed His Son with the oil of gladness above His companions. Above His companions? What does that mean? It's a, it's a passage about the priestly work of Jesus. And the Old Testament priest would have the flask of oil broken open over them at their anointing ceremony, and it would drip down. We're told right in Scripture, I'm not making this up, it would drip off their heads. So anointed were they, it would drip down off their beards. So anointed were they, it would saturate their robes. So anointed were they, that it would drip off the hem of their garment. They were saturated in oil. And God said, now I want you to picture Jesus. He is anointed with the oil of joy more than all His companions. How saturated in joy is Jesus? This is what the Lord Jesus was trying to tell His disciples in John 15. I've said all these things to you so that you can have My joy in you so that your joy will be made full. And in chapter 16 of the Gospel of John, He says, until now you've not asked anything in My name. Ask, and you will receive it so that your joy will be made full. The inner Trinitarian delight of God in shorthand, is what the Bible calls wisdom. Finally, the book of Proverbs is the basis from which the rest of the Bible points to Jesus Christ as the storehouse of all of God's wisdom. Forgive my complex way of saying a complex thing, but I couldn't get it any shorter than that. The book of Proverbs is the basis from which the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible points to Christ Jesus as the storehouse of God's wisdom. If you don't get Christ, you don't have wisdom. Three examples. Colossians chapter 2. In Him are hidden all 
the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of them. God reached His infinite arms around all the wisdom in the universe, bound it up in one bundle tight, and packed it into the incarnate Lord Jesus. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Him. If you don't have Christ, you don't have wisdom. That's why old people can be unwise. Experienced people, people who have been through the school of hard knocks can be unwise. That's why the Pharisees can be unwise. They knew their Bible better than me and you. Combined. And were unwise. You can know truth and be unwise. And if you want exhibit A, look at Satan. His favorite resource is the Bible. And he is the most unwise of all created beings. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's why the Proverbs say, walk with the wise, and you'll be wise. Christ is the storehouse. Another example. 1 Corinthians says about the incarnation, the, the human taking on of the Lord Jesus in His full divinity. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. When Christians look at Jesus, they don't see a good teacher. We do see that. We don't see a nice person. We do see that. We don't see somebody who was filled with supernatural powers and did a bunch of miracles, and we do see that. But when we look at Jesus, we're attracted to somebody who is perfect in all of His ways. We see in Him what Colossians called the, the treasure trove, the storehouse of all wisdom and all knowledge, and what 1 Corinthians says, a person who is in and of himself, quote, the wisdom of God. Finally, 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. <laughs> God made Christ Jesus to become to you His wisdom. Do you want wisdom? If you ask God for it, I promise you, sooner or later, as I said earlier, He's going to lead you to 31 chapters that He already wrote down called Proverbs. But through those chapters and every other verse of the Bible, He's aiming to take you to somewhere, and that is to someone. To His Son. By God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. If you ask God for wisdom, there are many ways to Jesus. But He's the one way to God. God will bring you to His Son. By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 That is righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In conclusion, Here's the greatest conundrum of the Bible. When I read the book of Proverbs, my head spins. Because I read the propositional statements in chapters 10 to 16, 15, and it's the normal pattern of the world. It's the way things normally work. You work hard, you'll prosper. You're lazy, you'll be poor. All right? Stuff like that all through those chapters. Then I start, I continue reading chapter 16 and following, and it's all the exceptions to all those rules. And I don't know which one is which. And there's conundrums all over the place. There are so many conundrums that we run into in this life. Complexities. Our own sin creates problems. Sins of others against us creates problems. Living in a fallen world when there's not necessarily a sin involved in our particular situation, but we live in a cursed cosmos because of sin. And there may not be a particular sin in our particular situation, but nonetheless we find ourselves in constant conundrums. The biggest of all the conundrums is answered by the wisdom of God. How, how could Jesus be eternal? Proverbs 8. That's not the biggest conundrum. Of course He's eternal. How could God be preacher the most God-centered person in the universe? Of course it's true. And if we saw Him the way He sees Himself, we would join Him in His radical God-centeredness as well. So that's a conundrum, but it's not the biggest one. The problem, the complexity of all of life is this. How can it be wise for Him to love and befriend somebody like you? If you hadn't bumped up against that problem, you hadn't found a problem yet. 
This requires wisdom beyond this world. Enter Jesus. Tim Keller said, preaching his series on Proverbs, Jesus is God's argument. Jesus is God's wisdom. He is both the conundrum and the solution. How can it be that He be both God and man? Divine, possessing all the nature of God. Human, possessing all the qualities of our creatureliness. Instead of of telling us a bunch of wise things to do in order to be saved, God sent wisdom incarnate to show us His unlimited love. He sent wisdom in a person to die as the solution to the biggest complexity and conundrum in the universe. The wisdom of Solomon was great, right? You remember God said, you ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon wisely asked for wisdom. And so people were coming to Solomon with all these great problems. There was this lady over here and this lady over there and there was one baby in the middle and this lady said it belonged to her and this lady said it belonged to her. And so to solve the problem, they brought the baby, the two moms, the two ladies to Solomon. Do you remember what Solomon said? That's easy. Just cut the baby in half and half goes to you and half goes to her. And the real mom said, no, 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 no. Let her have the baby. And Solomon said, ah, There's the real mom. You get to keep the baby. The wisdom of Solomon was great. But that's nothing in compare with God's wisdom. You know what God did? How are these wretched sinners going to be saved? How is God going to uphold the honor of His character? How is He not going to be depleted in His deity to become a friend of somebody like me? How is He going to let a rebel become righteous? How is He going to get the the righteousness that belongs to Him credited to somebody as unrighteous as me? How will the conundrum be solved if it's even possible? And in wisdom unparalleled, infinite and beyond this universe, although you were the lying, stealing, kidnapping parent who deserved death, Instead of cutting the baby in half, God in His wisdom sawed His Son in two. He put wisdom forward as the answer to the conundrum of the universe. He lacerated wisdom so that you could have life. In wisdom unparalleled, He took your crimes and imputed them to the only righteous person who's ever stepped foot on this planet. And He took the righteousness of that person and imputes it to you if you will but flee from your crimes in the wounds of that One. Do you want to go free? Do you want wisdom? There's only one wise. And that wise one was suspended between heaven and earth on a cross outside of Jerusalem for the sins that you committed because you're not wise enough to figure it out on your own. You're not wise enough to get wisdom on your own. You can't have wisdom without Jesus. And God knowing that this is true didn't give you a bunch of factoids so you could go impress your friends with your little nuggets of smartness. He did something that abases the pride of man. It puts us low. So low to say, I'm so bad. I'm so unwise that the Son of God had to die for me. Nothing worse could be said of a man. But I'm so loved that the Son of God was glad to die for me. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Him. God made Him to us wisdom. That is righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and Gentiles this is foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the wisdom of God. And that's what Proverbs 8 and I believe the remainder of the book is all about. And God willing, for the next seven Sundays, we won't take our attention off of Him through this book. Join me as we pray together. Father, I thank You for these precious ones who are gathered with me today to consider these amazing, wonderful, far beyond us truths that Jesus Himself has been Your delight from all eternity. 
that He's frolicked and played in front of you. He's rejoiced in front of you, in you, with all His heart, from all eternity. These things are so deep, we don't even know how to begin in them, let alone exhaust them. But thank You for inviting us to come. And Lord, we thank You that wisdom, our King, our Creator, is the One through whom You made the cosmos. You made us. You designed us. And though in rebellion unspeakable, treason against You, we turned our back. We went our own way. We thought we were wise. We thought we knew better than You. And we've loved our foolishness, Lord. In wisdom unspeakable, You sent the King of glory, the all-wise One, to come and demonstrate how wise You are that You can solve the biggest problem in the universe all by Yourself without our help. You didn't ask us how to do it. We wouldn't have come up with a plan if, we, if You had asked us. And if we had come up with a plan, none of us would have been audacious to barge our little selves into Your throne room and say, I got a good idea. Why don't You kill Jesus for me? Thank You, God, for being the all-wise King who knows how to solve the biggest problem and proving it at Calvary. That Jesus Himself would pour out His life's blood so that we could bear His righteousness. And that forever, we could ever increase in the enjoyment of wisdom. Oh God, I pray for my friends who have yet to come to Jesus that they would throw themselves on His mercy. That they would believe in His risen victory. That the same King who dismounted heaven and came to this earth and died for our sins is the one now ascended and reigning on heaven's throne forever as a glorious display to the whole universe of how wise you are. Oh God, would you cause these young and old to flee to Jesus. And for those of us who've tasted from His fountain, would you draw us back again? Lord, forgive us for running around into the empty cisterns of our own thoughts and our own ways and our own so-called wisdom. And would You call us back to Yourself to deep, mind-transforming meditation, prayerful, diligent attention to Your Word. And teach us to think Your thoughts. Teach us to behave in a way that brings You glory. Even in the complexities of this life, to apply Your character and Your truth to the situations that we face. Lord, thank You for these brothers and sisters. Thank You for this church. Saturate us with the presence and the wisdom of King Jesus. We ask this in His name. Amen.